1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 21st, 2018. On this week's show, the Athletics' Marcus Thompson will join us to talk about the state of Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors after they blew out the Rockets in Game 3 of the Western Conference Finals. Ira Boudway of Bloomberg will also be here to help us assess the consequences of the Supreme Court's ruling, allowing sports gambling to proliferate across this here United States. And John Swansburg of The Atlantic will come on the show to chat with us about one of Tom Wolfe's most famous pieces of journalism, the Esquire story The Last American Hero is Junior Johnson. Yes! Joining us here in our studio, providing exclamations on this week's show. It is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Stefan, I want to thank you for touting my 2002 City Paper piece last week mm-hmm. on uh, lead and water. I was really proud. That was one of the first pieces of journalism I did. That was like a fairly big local story, and we beat the Washington Post to it. And showing my strong reporting instincts, we produced no follow-ups. I should say I produced no follow-ups, and then like the Post did a bunch of really good journalism on the uh, problem well, of DC Water.
3: It's sort of like being an editor, Josh. It was just foreshadowing your career as an editor. You're the inspiration for others.
1: I think somebody just assigned me the tip, so I basically like wrote one story and then forgot about it for the rest of my life. But I do deserve all of the credit. I wanted to mention... The first story of yours that I was able to find in any news database, I'm sure it wasn't the first piece that you wrote, but it's the first one that's been memorialized by newspapers.com, which is a piece that begins, Oh, to be a parking valet in Palm Beach. This is very Tom Wolfe-esque. The land of Lamborghini, the province of Porsche, the mecca of mercedes the capital of Cadillac. Tell us a little bit about that piece, Devin.
3: I wrote that for the Miami Herald. I was an intern in the summer of 1985, just after having graduated from college. Uh, I remember that was sort of late in the summer. I did that. It was a big piece. It was a long feature. It was like a big spread on the front of the of the uh, of the whatever section, it's a good, the it's, style section.
1: It's a good story. It's a fun story, and the by far the most fun part. It's. Stephen's Prose is good, but just the list of celebrities who these valets is fantastic. talk about. Um, I,
3: totally, I mean, look, I remember doing this piece. I actually remember talking to the valets. I can remember writing the story in the Palm Beach Bureau of the Miami Herald. But I did not remember the names that I dropped.
1: John Travolta dined with Mary Lou Henner. Sen- <laughs> I like the sentence. This is just a very well-executed sentence. Senator Ted Kennedy came to the restaurant once, but he walked there's also Michael Landon, Charles Nelson Reilly, Burt Reynolds, Harry Reasoner, Kurt Gowdy, for all you sports fans out there. Yeah, wanted to get a sports name in there, too. Uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Lonnie Anderson,
3: Atlanta Braves left fielder Dale Murphy.
1: <laughs> we'll put a link on our show page so you can have a comprehensive list of the celebrities that Stefan heard about in 1985. On Sunday night in Oakland's Oracle Arena, the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry both looked pretty damn healthy. The Warriors blew out the Rockets 126 to 85 to take a 2 1 lead in the Western Conference Finals. Steph scored 35 points on 13 of 23 shooting, making moves that a typical human can't make and that an atypical human probably can't make if his medial collateral ligament isn't fully healed. Joining us now to talk about Steph and the Warriors is Marcus Thompson. Marcus is a writer for The Athletic and the author of Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. How's it going, Marcus?
4: My MCL is a little bit, you know, struggling. My my, my left MCL eh, I think it's a grade two. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, we'll grade your writing on a curve after last night's game. We won't. <laughs> we won't be too harsh on it. Um, Thank you. So Steph in the third quarter, he makes one of his, you know, kind of patented step back behind the back dribble, moves on Harden, makes a three. Next time down the court, um, makes a driving layup and yells, "This is my fucking house." Is that, is that what it felt like in Oracle last night?
4: No question. Like, he wasn't the only one cussing. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't know it happened either. Like, because, you know, our angle, I'm kind of behind him. And then Twitter starts blowing up. And the funny part is, like, this has happened before. So I actually know all that was about to happen. I was like, and when, I, when I saw the video clip, I was like, oh, he's going to get a text from Sonya. You know, because his mom, <laughs> you know, is on him about, you know being clean and making sure he's presentable right and saying the right things i remember this happened a while ago like on espn they caught a clip and he clearly dropped an f-bomb and uh he got in trouble like his mom texts him and i think she gives him a fine or something like that so after the game he was trying to uh barter like well i only had one turnover so the fine should be like decreased (laughs) because because i only had one turnover because he also has to pay a fine for turnovers right so, he what? got in trouble, basically.
3: He got in trouble, but uh, what did he say afterward when he was asked about it? This is my favorite house?
4: <laughs> yeah, so that was the little <laughs> running, Clean like, version. him with his PRT was trying to put a spin on it. He's like, yeah, I said I said my favorite house. Y'all, y'all misread me. I was like, yeah, ain't nobody buying that. It was very clear what you said. I was like, you got to go with, like, fudge or something. Like, that's closer. <laughs> but he said he don't like chocolate, so... <laughs> then he just said he blacked out. That's what it was. He blacked out.
1: <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's an overstatement, Marcus, to say like not only is like not only are the Warriors different, not only is Oracle Arena different than when Steph is playing like this, but the whole NBA feels different when he has a game like this. There's nobody like him in the league, and when Steph is playing like Steph, nobody is going to beat the Warriors, and that's why we've had so much attention on his health and you know, how is he looking on every drive and every, you know, defensive possession, every offensive possession. And you realize when you watch sequences like the one on Sunday night, that like, this is the reason why we paid such attention to him.
4: It was such a, like, a crystallization of that reality, right? And like, as it's happening, it was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's what this is about. Because it was what, three days of me saying, man, Steph is healthy, like, stop asking, right? He's fine, like, he's driving to the hole, he's he's trying hard on defense, he's not hurt, he's just out of rhythm. And it was just, like, irritating. And then when that happened, it's like, oh, this is why everybody's asking It's because he didn't look like this, right? This is the Steph Curry everybody has come to like. And I was thinking, like, man, what does it feel like to be another NBA player? Like, if you're James Harden or you're Kevin Durant or you're, you know, maybe I guess LeBron is the only other one who don't experience this. But you've been playing well, right? You've been doing well. And, you know, you drive a narrative a little bit. And then Steph does that. And everybody loses their mind. It's got to be like, man, I hate this dude. <laughs> I mean, think of if you're Chris Paul and James Harden. Look what you've done to get here. To, like, resurrect your careers and change the narrative about you. And then in a blink. Steph just made it look like you choked again. Like, oh, that would drive me insane.
3: Walk us through the last few days also. Steve Kerr was pretty annoyed at the podium after the Warriors lost to the Rockets the other night. And when he was asked about whether Steph is healthy and he dropped some sarcastic, oh, 13%, you know, healthy, whatever. Um, Do you think that in in everyone's mind on that team that this
4: was just a matter of time? no question like every, it's we've seen it so many times before and usually the the like the work the worse he struggles the more emphatic the comeback is right the the worse the slump the bigger the breakout hmm. that that's normally kind of the Steph pattern I remember the, the very first one and this was before he was Steph this was before you knew like he was on this level and they were playing Memphis in 2015 and at that point it was like all right well, maybe we've just seen his ceiling, right? And Tony Allen is like in his, in his stuff, right? Tony Allen is over. he can't, he can't get a shot off. He's pump faking when nobody's there, and you're like, okay, all right. So Stephs is, this is the kind of player he is. He's, he can, he's this good. He gets you to this level, but then boom, he breaks out, and we saw it again in the finals. Like, remember Della Vadova was stopping him or whatever, and then he breaks out and drops 37. And duel, you know, like LeBron in the fourth quarter, like we've seen him do this at these various stages. Even 2016 when he was struggling, and then he breaks out and scores 17 in overtime in Portland. Like you know it's coming. You know it's just a matter of time. To, and it's a little irritating for them to keep having to ask answer the same questions. And they're like, man, just wait. Like it's Steph.
1: You you erased some uh, significant facts from the 2016 postseason. You got you got part of the you got part of the 2016 uh, Steph Curry narrative in there, but not not the whole thing.
4: Actually, you know what? Uh, I do think like remember he was he was really struggling the first two games, and the Warriors blew him out, and it wasn't that big of a deal. But it was like, what's wrong with right. Steph? They guy like 19, and in game three they got smashed, and he was terrible. And I remember like. It was the same situation, and then game four, he dropped 38 in Cleveland, and the Warriors go up 3-1. I remember, everybody was killing his shoes, and he goes out, and he has 38, and then uh, the day after, he writes a, draws a fire emoji on his shoes, and it was like, all right, it was the big breakout game. So he actually did it in that series. They just needed another one, and yeah. he couldn't do it, <laughs> but... I, I actually forgot about that because I was thinking about it. I was like, well, that one time he didn't come through. And then I looked back and I was like, oh, yeah, he did kind of have the one breakout game. And I think he thought, all right, I did it. We ended the series. That was the last I got. And then LeBron happened.
1: I'm interested in the dynamic on the Warriors now, especially after Steph has a game like this. You mentioned kind of in your litany of players, like I wonder what. Harden feels like, I wonder what Chris Paul feels like, I wonder what Kevin Durant feels like. And that's the part that I want to focus in on here because Durant was by far and away their best player in the first two games of the Rocket Series. In Game 2, when the Warriors lost big, he was really the only guy who showed up from Golden State in that game. And this dynamic on the team obviously goes back to Katie's decision to go to Golden State and what was the role he was going to have on the team. He's the Finals MVP, but still not... You know, their most important player. And so I'm wondering, you know, we kind of have heard all the conversations that fans have about this, but how does that play out, do you think, with KD psychologically? And how does that play out on in the locker room?
4: I mean, I, I got to add that he was the best player in a New Orleans series, too. For right. Sure. And the best player in the San Antonio series, which Steph didn't even play. Uh, I don't, here's what I don't think it's not nothing, right? I don't think it's something, I think it would be a lie to say, that he doesn't feel it, uh, and for me, if he didn't feel it, then it wouldn't even be a sacrifice. I do think like he's reached that point in his career where he can swallow it, and it doesn't matter to him that much, right? It's not. I don't believe. I don't believe it wh- if he were to say, "Oh no, I'm fine with it," because these dudes are NBA players, and you don't get to this level without having the ego, right? And I'll, without having pride and a competitive spirit, and it, I, it's got to be tough when you're in the bay area it's not like how steph is viewed outside of the bay in the bay area he is very like deified right it is he is the chosen one he is the, the 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 beloved son and that's the kind of reaction you get for you know for him it's i i i can't i can't believe durant if he were to say i don't feel it at all i do just feel like man he's almost 30. And he's scored twenty thousand points, right? And I, I just think those type of accolades might get suppressed some. Like he, I don't know if he wants it as much as he probably wants once, once did. Not only that, like if he did, he, he would kinda stand out in the locker room because everybody takes a back seat to that, right? And that's kind of Steph's role on the team. You, you know, Clay Thompson is not clamoring for spotlight and love and all that. So I do think there's got to be something that he would never say right out loud or maybe he will one day but on a burner account probably right right right. What if a tweet pops up but I, I do think there's a there's a certain uh, maturity level to Durant and this team that says hey, it's fine. we can let Steph have that.
3: It was one game. I mean, Kevin Durant <laughs> should be pretty happy. I mean, he scored 25 points. They won by 40. Steph Curry is like a like, you know, he's like a little stuffed animal. You he's going to get the love that Kevin Durant's not going
1: to. But get. there's a dynamic on this team sure. that will never go away because they won before, before they, Katie before got Katie there got and got because there. like what Marcus said, like Steph is a god yeah. in in uh in the Bay. In a way that Katie never would right. be. I mean,
3: look, there's a rational explanation for why People are going to love Steph Curry more than they're going to idolize Kevin Durant. Size being the most important thing, I think. We love cute little guys that do things that cute little guys aren't supposed to do. Um, but you would have to hope that Kevin Durant – I mean, Kevin Durant went on TNT after the game. He seemed happy to, to talk with Charles and Shaq. He wasn't complaining about, about the, his performance or about, about Curry doing so well.
4: Nah, he actually was part of the the Let's Get Steph Curry Going campaign, right? He's the guy, like, he told me, I'm going to talk to Steph. I'm going to get in his ear. You know, the, the four shots this kind of got Steph going were all passes from Durant. Yeah. I, you know, He's on board. I, I've talked to them, him about this before, and there's been times throughout the season where I'm like, I wonder what KD's thinking, right? And, and he he says he says the things where it's like, OK, maybe maybe he's matured some. And Durant is one of those guys that I don't think he can lie. Right. Like he just he doesn't know how to hide what he really feels like. He can't hide it in New Orleans when he was frustrated because they weren't running the offense through him. Like he was trying to be coy about it. But I'm like, dude, you're so obvious up there that you're bothered, right? He's the, he's the guy who wears the emotions on the sleeve and can't really front. So I haven't gotten the sense yet that this is like a deal breaker for him or this is a problem for him. He seems to relish in it, and I think there's a national like standard too. Like there's the Bay Area hierarchy, but then there's a national hierarchy, and in a national hierarchy. People say he's the best player on the team, and he's the guy. So he he does get he does get a fair amount of love.
1: I just thought it was a little cold, Marcus, that you're going to title your next book "Silver: The Kind of Miraculous Rise Bronze, of Kevin Durant." Baby, <laughs> <laughs> um, copper. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, if we're being, like, super ungenerous to the Rockets, we could point out that the Pelicans, like, blew the Warriors out in one game yeah. in uh, in the, you know, second round. So, like, whoop-dee-doo Rockets. But they did look really good in game two. They won um, by
3: 22 points.
1: You know, it was the kind of, you know, peak of what this Rockets team can be. They weren't they, – they did a lot of isolation play with Harden and Paul, but they did it to get the – Other guys involved, uh, you know, P.J. Tucker had a great game. Eric Gordon had a great game. Was there anything in that game, Marcus, that either for this series or for a potential finals matchup that you saw as like they've exposed the Warriors in some way that would give like uh, either the Rockets or another team hope?
4: You know, I don't know if the other teams remaining are like uniquely capable of capitalizing, but if you can have a non-dribbling ISO player, just attack quickly. It's the quickness of it. If you do it, it really does cause the Warriors problems. Number one is going to make them start their their Hamptons five lineup, right? It decimates the bench, right? He's down to eight players because half the roster is centers that can't even play. So he would. I know Steve Kerr would like to not start the Hamptons five, but if you got guys attacking like that. He kind of has to because you got to be able to switch everywhere. The problem with Harden and Chris Paul is they like to dribble 98,000 times before they go. <laughs> Whenever they just go, it breaks down the Warriors' defense, and then there's like three rotations that has to happen, and, it, and it, it doesn't really work well for the Warriors. When they wait and they lag and the Warriors got time to communicate and make sure everybody's set, then it works against them. So I don't know who's available left to do that, and maybe Boston presents some problems because they don't have that one ISO guy, but they almost play like a lesser version of what the Warriors do.
3: Marcus, can you explain or help us understand why the conference finals have been so terrible the last two years? I think the last 14 or 15 games, the average margin of victory is well as like 22 points. There have been two games with margins over forty five, over 30, and something like seven over 20 i'm at a loss this, this has just not been entertaining other than watching steph curry go off which was extremely
4: entertaining i mean you just that's like my whole last two years i haven't the warriors haven't played a series past five games since the 2016 finals like this is life oh forget
3: <laughs> right? the warriors too the other the other series also yeah have, the other series blowout yeah. blowout I think, blowout
4: i think in the end like There's a, the the difference is there's a clear delineation in the stars. There's like an elite group that's LeBron, Steph, and KD. And then there's probably everybody else. And that's just the bottom line. And James Harden's pissed at you. Harden, Westbrook, these guys. I mean, you have to do it in the playoffs. Like that's, that's where you really earn your stripes in the playoffs. That's how it's always been, right? Like in the nineties, you had to do it in the playoffs. And these guys just aren't getting it done in the playoffs. And once you run against LeBron, some of these all stars, you know, the, what Toronto? I mean, what happened to them is just it's ungodly. Like how <laughs> I just can't believe they went out like that. And you're seeing stars like not be stars in the postseason. And maybe that's just because LeBron is so great and the Warriors are so great that in another era, these guys would be excellent. Right. Kind of like, you know, Jordan made Clyde Drexler look average.
1: I think there's something to that. But the part your explanation doesn't get at is that, like, you know, the Rockets blew out the Warriors and the Celtics blew out the Cavs this year. And I think maybe one of the reasons why you're more likely to see blowouts in the last few years, even when you get down to the last few elite teams, is that just it's. You know, it's been the cliche forever that it's a make-or-miss league, but when you're yes. making when or you're missing, missing. three-pointers.
4: It's three-pointers. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, the Cavs,
1: the, the Cavs are, um, have been so on and off, and they just, like, nailed everything in Game 3 and made nothing in Games 1 and 2. And so, obviously, that's going to have a huge, um, you know, delta. In well, and
3: I also think that in, in some of these NBA games, it's a recognition at some point that we ain't winning this game. So let's just not kill ourselves here. Let's shut it down. And with LeBron, that's clearly the case. Brian Windhorst of ESPN did a piece the other day that talked about how LeBron, even in the regular season, walks more than almost any other player in the NBA. Not travels, but walks during the game. Um, he, his average speed is like among the slowest of all NBA players because he is conserving energy either for later in the game when it might matter or for the next game when it might really matter.
4: That's what the Warriors do. Like if you're up on them and you, this is like a formula that's been true for the last two or three years. If you're up on them in the third quarter, double digits, and they can't hit you with the knockout blow, they're done. They, they just check out mentally. Like, yeah. if you you got to blow them out, though. If it's close, they'll fight. But if if it goes to 20 and there's five minutes left in the third, they're like, yeah, you, you can have this one. And part of that is the three-point variance, and part of it is you kind of need to be perfect to beat these teams, right? Like, you got to play lights out, and teams are good, players are good. They'll play one game lights out. Like, if you can't beat the Warriors one time, like you're not worth your weight in playoff salt, like, and you know we've seen it. Like even Cleveland last year in the finals, they got the one game where they just destroyed the Warriors. I think it was like by 35 or something. Uh, obviously they weren't better than the Warriors, but you get those games. The three-point variance helps, but man, they, they do know how to, good teams know when to pack it in and, <laughs> and, and fold the tent, right? Which used to be a slight, right? Used to be a knock. Oh, we 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 could have you heard coaches say it all the time right we could have folded it in but we kept fighting nah Uh -uh. good teams these days like yeah we're folding a tent
1: all last question for you marcus like what is jaja patchouli up to or like what 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 are the guys who just don't play like do during during the playoffs they get really bored like are they or do they get more into like towel waving like what's got what's the dynamic on the warriors bench right now
4: so there's two, like, different dynamics. One, there's the guys who never play and are kind of used to it, right? Their lives just go on as normal, right? <laughs> they got the same routine. And they are, like, really key in developing the celebratory, like, behaviors, right? So depending on what happens, you'll see them. They, they have codes and moves. You do a move on the court, it triggers a celebration on the bench, right? You go left hand, everybody's waving their left hand and going crazy. like So that that's what you do when you don't play at all. New guys like Zaza, who, like, just got benched for the playoffs, you know, he goes through the stages of grief. At first, he wasn't doing anything, right? He's, like, (laughs) pissed off he's not playing. (laughs) And then eventually, he's, like, up and cheering. And now he's literally, like, coaching. He he once, I think it was game one, walked onto the court during a free throw and gave Draymond (laughs) Green some advice. So so he's, like, the coach now, assistant coach. He's, like, really taking on the role. And also, if you're on the bench not playing – you better be, you better be, uh, fashionable. Like that's the thing now. Like the walk in, <laughs> even right. though nobody's watching you. Like especially Zaza, he and Clay had like a fashion contest last night. So it's the little stuff. It's the fun camaraderie elements. You got You got to bring it. You got to be part of it if you're not playing.
1: Marcus Thompson is a writer for the Athletic, the author of Golden: The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry, and has not written any books about Kevin Durant. Case closed. It's coming. <laughs> All right. We'll look out for that. Marcus, thanks as
4: always. All right. Have a good one, fellas.
1: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game-changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get to our segment on gambling, I want to tell you about what we're going to be talking about in our Slate Plus bit this week. Our producer, Patrick Fort, our uh, local in-house hockey aficionado. And official. And official. Aficionado. Uh, is going to drop some knowledge on us about uh, the Vegas Golden Knights making it to the Stanley Cup final, their first ever Stanley Cup final. Go figure. Uh, And uh, what's going on in that other conference of hockey. Got some Tampa Bay and Washington action. Uh, If you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. Uh, It's just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
3: In 1992, Gary Bettman, then the general counsel for the NBA, said that legalized sports betting puts the game and the players under a cloud of suspicion— and changes our fans into point-spread fans. He and other sports leagues were pleased when Congress passed a law that year banning commercial sports gambling in most states. Today, Bettman is the commissioner of the NHL. His new franchise in Las Vegas just reached the Stanley Cup Finals. And after the Supreme Court last week struck down, that 1992 law said, I think there's a fair amount of opportunity if it's done right. That sports leagues can finally have their cake and eat it, too, is one big takeaway from the Supreme Court's 7-2 decision. Here to discuss that and more is Ira Budway, who covers sports business for Bloomberg. Hey, Ira, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: First, give us a quick overview of the Supreme Court ruling and what its immediate impact
2: is. Well, the, the uh, case was brought by... The leagues actually against New Jersey. The state of New Jersey had been trying for several years to add sports betting to the menu at its uh, tracks and casinos in Atlantic City, and uh, they basically wanted the federal law that's in the way uh, to be ruled unconstitutional. Uh, the rule, the law that you just mentioned, and it took them a long time. But the Supreme Court agreed to hear the arguments in December, and that was really a huge moment when everybody thought maybe after many, many defeats in lower courts, uh, New Jersey might win this thing, uh, and then uh, they did. Uh, they The court ruled in the broadest way possible that it basically um, removed the entire federal law and made it unconstitutional. That was in the way, and so now New Jersey can go ahead with its plans, but also any other state that wants to uh, can add sports betting to uh, its market economy and uh, and set up rules for that. And until there's a new federal law, if there ever is one, it's uh, any state can can do what it wants. And so New Jersey will probably be uh, on board. Uh, I mean, we'll probably be having bets, you know, within a month. And um, Delaware will probably be right behind it. And then there's several other states that have already written laws that said if if PASPA, the federal law that was in the way, were to fall, we want to get in the game, too. And then there are a bunch more that are working on those laws. And probably within five years, you're talking about half the states in the country allowing sports betting.
1: Yeah, the other states that you mentioned in your piece on Bloomberg about how this is all going to shake out, the other ones that are basically ready for this to happen are New York, Connecticut... Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Mississippi, right?
2: Right. And then Delaware had NFL parlay cards run by the state lottery and can now add uh, sort of a more full menu of betting if they want uh, through the lottery and probably will very soon.
1: So two things that I think we should talk about. The first is, as Stefan alluded to, the kind of strategy by the leagues, how it's shifted over time and sort of how they've positioned themselves for this decision. The second is just like, What's going to happen? Like in five or ten years, um, how are we going to bet on sports as uh, a sports betting people? Stefan, do you want to field one of those first?
3: Yeah, well, I think I would start with let's look at the league's policies. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I said have your cake and eat it too. And the overriding message from the professional sports leagues and the NCAA has been gambling is immoral. Gambling could taint our games. Gambling is a huge problem. But – The thinking has gradually begun to shift among some executives, Adam Silver of the NBA being the most prominent in 2014. Silver came out and basically said, we changed our minds. We think that sports gambling is actually okay if it's regulated properly. Oh, and by the way, we think there should be a 1%. What is he calling it? a uh, integrity fee a vig maybe <laughs> a, a vig would be another way of putting it that is paid to the leagues from all of the betting to ensure that they have the proper enforcement mechanisms in place so basically what's happened is that the sport sports leagues have recognized and acknowledged that as Washington Capitals and Wizards owner Ted Leonsis said after the Supreme Court case came down there's an underground gigantic pool of revenue and now it moves into the sunshine they want this money.
2: That's right. I think they, they do want a piece of the action, and some of it is a bit cynical. I do think also that the the world changed underneath them a little bit. The the internet basically made gambling a worldwide market um, and one that you could have some visibility into uh, with a, with a smart you know monitoring. And so the argument that this is happening, and the more we can see it, the more we can protect the games from corruption, it does hold some water. Um, no, I think you're right. And if yeah. you
3: look at the Premier League in England, it's the best example of that. Uh, gambling is perfectly legal. There are betting parlors you can bet online. And what it gives sports leagues and organizations is the ability to monitor gambling patterns and actually detect if there's anything illicit going on.
2: That said, I mean, a lot of the action for the Premier League and for the NBA was already happening in Asian markets that right. you can sometimes see, sometimes can't. So it doesn't really matter that much what they do. They, they just have to try to watch it, whether it's in a black market or in a regulated market. But. And I think with the integrity fee, you look at the example of the Premier League, there is none, uh, but the leagues there make a lot of money off of gambling through sponsorships, through advertising, um, through just increased ratings, presumably because of the added interest in the games. So, But there are other European leagues where there is a fee taken off the top uh, for the leagues for, for betting op- from betting operators, so... It was, I think, a pretty bold thing to call it an integrity fee and to ask for 1%. Um, but if they get anything, which you know, a couple of states have negotiated down to a quarter of a percent, that's a win for the leagues because any kind of just automatic fee is a victory. Uh, and the other thing to watch with that is that you know, the, the cost of monitoring markets is actually probably a lot less than the revenue the leagues can make if they are allowed to to make it a rule that every betting operator has to use official data supplies, because then that's a data supply that the leagues can sell to these companies like Sport Radar and Genius and Perform that do um, that provide data to betting houses and also provide the the fraud detection services. So, so that's, that's on another one, revenue stream there. Right. And you're talking about, for instance, the NBA has a six-year $250 million deal with SportRadar that does not include the North American markets. Uh, so, And SportRadar then turns around to sells that data to the betting houses. If they can do that in North America, there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars potentially in revenue there.
1: That's really interesting. And another thing that I'm kind of fascinated by is there's been all of this conjecture just for however long I've been reading stories about this, about how much money is bet on sporting events illegally. I saw on five thirty eight they said casinos estimate that it's $150 billion. It'll be interesting to see what the real amount is once this is legalized. And there's also the question of once this is legalized, will a lot of people still bet illegally just out of convenience or out of Habit. Um, that'll be something that I'll be fascinated by. The other thing that I think is really great from a heightened the contradiction standpoint is that legal sports betting on college sports is now going to be massive. and it's going to proliferate everywhere around the u s. The NCAA had banned having championship events in Nevada because heaven forbid. There was, um, you know, gambling on NCAA teams. And I think you couldn't bet on UNLV um, in Vegas casinos, right? Um, And now there's going to be sports betting everywhere. There are going to be NCAA championship events in states that have legalized sports gambling. And I think if you're an NCAA athlete, this is just going to be another reason why, you know, you're going to start to understand and appreciate that you're getting – a raw deal that you're considered an amateur, and obviously you can't be you know paid for your efforts, but you know of course we're going to allow people to bet on the games that you 're playing in and make money off of you in that way
2: yeah, and I think it's really going to strain the nCAA because i mean i'd been told at one point that the way that it really works in Vegas is that all the bookmakers know there's a person there at UNLV, they're supposed to call if any player shows up at a sports book. And that's a very informal system for preventing, you know, potential corruption. But if you're trying, if this market scales up, that doesn't scale. And and amateurs are the most, you know, uh, influenceable when it comes to this kind of thing. So they're going to have a, a very tricky path, I think, going forward. But and you're right, nobody knows how big this is. Uh, that $150 billion number that gets repeated all the time is basically the midpoint of an $80 billion to $380 billion estimate from 1999 from a congressional impact study. That itself was more or less a guess, as you can tell by how broad that range was. Uh, so it's probably lower than that, um, but it's, no one knows is the point. And then no one knows how many of those gamblers will come to a regulated market. A lot of them are pretty well-served by their, you know, local bookie, their friend they've had who extends credit, uh, who doesn't tell the IRS, doesn't tell their spouse what they're doing, you know, and maybe occasionally cuts them a break. And nowadays, also probably has an app that they can offer them that will allow them to bet in games, allow them to have the latest odds, allow them a full menu of betting. So they they may not need to come to you know the William Hills of the world or the MGMs. And I think the bigger opportunity for those operators as markets open up, those legal operators is to get new customers, people who aren't regular bettors now, don't have a bookie now, who maybe were discouraged by the fact that it was illegal going, oh, hey, you know, maybe they're being advertised to, maybe they saw the news stories and now maybe they want to have a few bets. And I think that's going to be where so there's going to be two markets. There's going to be people coming over, and then there's going to be a whole new market that I think is going to be a lot bigger.
3: Well, and isn't, isn't that market the one that's really important to focus on here? Because at every opportunity, American sports fans want to find a way to wager in some way, whether it is doing daily fantasy or whether it is betting in your you know five bucks in your NCAA office pool. And the convenience of being able to do this on an app, Um, to do it online, is going to be overwhelming. I mean, I would think that whatever estimates people are looking at, as old as they might be, probably underestimate the potential interest here, which may be why the leagues are so motivated and have been planning for this day to come for so long.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing we know is that it's really widespread behavior. Uh, even when it's illegal, and it's going to get probably more widespread. Uh, and so there's even if it's not huge dollar amounts being bet, even if the margins are not necessarily great, it's a, it's a behavior where you can get huge groups of people engaged, and it's very sticky, some people would say addictive behavior. So there's a lot of interest for the leagues, for teams, for media companies, in reaching these customers. And I do think the new ones are the best ones also because they tend to be the the least informed betters, right? As, a, as an operator, you want somebody who doesn't understand the odds that well, does not have an edge. And so they're going to be doing their best to bring those, that kind of money into this market.
1: Yeah. We were talking a little bit before the show, Ira, and you mentioned how the potential, for why this is a great business opportunity now is that there's going to be so much more dumb money flowing in. And um, if you could just explain to folks what the margins are now for casinos on sports betting, and what potentially they could be once you get less informed bettors coming in and deciding they're going to just start making wagers just based on the fact that, you know, They've been watching sports for a long time and so obviously I know who's going to, you know, cover, you know, on Jets Bills on Sunday.
2: Right. I mean, if you look in Nevada, the margins now are about 5%, the hold percentage of, you know, of all the bets after they pay out the winners, what's left for the house is about 5% and that is growing slowly there, but that's not a great business model if you look even around gambling, but also just around the world of businesses, 5% is not great. The table games are much better for the casinos. And sports betting, from a larger gambling perspective, is a tiny sliver of your overall market. It's like 2%, you know, in Nevada. So, but what, when you look abroad, you can see higher margins. Um, in the U.K., for William Hill, they get 18% in the shops From betters, which is a great margin, and then they get about 8% online. And so the question is what kind of betters are we going to see? As the U.S. market grows, as it presumably will, are they going to be able to pull in new money and get higher margins on, you know, those kinds of proposition bets and, um, you know, contingency bets that really don't pay off very often? Uh, Or will the Internet continue to press margins down? Because the thing about the Internet is you can shop around for odds. You can see the whole market pretty easily if, if one house is offering a better odds than the other you 're going to go there that 's been the struggle in the u k is actually the internet has had the opposite effect on margins it has pushed them down because you can shop around for odds Interesting. And it, tends, it tends to be where the smart the sharper money is the people who place bigger bets the people who seem to understand their bets better um, so which way this goes is hard to say in the u s but I, I think you 're going to what you 're going to see is a lot of investment in trying to figure out now, because it was a relatively small market, you didn't have that much investment, that much smarts trying to crack it because it was a a small business in Nevada, a very sort of insular industry.
3: I mean, can you envision in North America a, a, a situation similar to England where you have a William Hill that actually has shops on the corner or a block away from, you know, Madison Square Garden? I mean, is that a viable market, do you think, in the United States?
2: I think so. Potentially, it's going to really be up to what the states decide they want to do. I think the model initially to look at is what's happening in Nevada now, where you have to go to a casino to open an account. But once you do, you can um, bet through your phone. And most of them already have apps. And that's probably going to be how it starts and maybe where it stays. But they may start to add shops. It may be like what off-track betting looked like in New York uh, right, once in upon the 70s, a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you might see that. But I think probably most of the money and most of the effort is going to be around mobile and online because that's the easiest. You know, that's the easiest way to grow a really big market out of right, it.
3: Right. So, so the goal here is to chase the dumb money, and what's the most effective way of doing that? How do I get the least the least sophisticated bettors to place the most bets?
2: Right. And and there's already people in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists I've spoken with, who are working on uh, w- sort of hybrid games that they're sort of like trivia HQ slash fantasy sports slash betting, where you do it at halftime over your phone. It's a series of que- yes, no questions. If you get them all right, you win, you know, or, or something like that. Or you pick three players, you know, these combinations of things that are allowed either under the rules potentially coming for sports betting or currently under the rules for daily fantasy, where they can create games that scratch that itch and where the, the, the customer doesn't really know kind of all the odds underneath.
3: Right. Well, it doesn't look like gambling, right? Will Steph right. Curry score 31 points, 33 points, or 37 points? T-minus exactly.
1: T- T how many weeks until the first piece about 11-year-old kids betting on this and parents being shocked and Congress looking to regulate it. My last thought is that I'm really interested in how sports betting is now going to be covered by mainstream journalistic outlets. Because if you look around the landscape now, Ira, I mean, Scott Van Pelt talks about gambling and lines and bad beats on, you know, the Midnight Sports Center. And that's like kind of a change recently. But otherwise, if you look at you know, whether it's The Times or The Post or The Journal or USA Today or, you know, any, anywhere else that covers sports, you don't really get whether it's like in line in a story about a game or even as like a broken out um, kind of coverage area. We don't really have coverage of of gambling. So I'm curious to somebody who's been writing about it and covering it if you think that's going to change.
2: I'm curious myself. I mean, we've already seen Action News is I think the name of this startup that's dedicated to gambling to covering the sports world through the gambling lens, um, which I got got a couple I think ESPN alums started that up. And I think you will see more of that, more media startups that are dedicated to covering sports as a as a betting thing. Um, Whether the mainstream media, how much the betting narratives will play with or overwhelm the sort of traditional who won you know, and and who are the personality storylines that we're used to seeing. I'll be curious to see because I don't think the leagues want it to feel like the real story is who covered, you know, (laughs) and and obviously
1: the leagues don't want that.
2: Yeah. And I don't know what the appetite is among general sports fans. You know, maybe they want to bet and then they want to read a story that's just about the game. I don't know. I'm not sure.
3: Ira Boudwe covers sports business for Bloomberg. Ira, thanks a lot for
2: joining us. Thank you.
3: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Tom Wolfe, who died last week at age 88, wrote a lot of stuff, nonfiction and fiction, in his long and storied and white-suited career. The New York Times' obituary of Wolfe put the candy-colored tangerine flake streamline baby the Right Stuff and Bonfire of the Vanities in the first paragraph, and noted in the third graph that in his use of novelistic techniques in his nonfiction, Mr. Wolf, beginning in the 1960s, helped create the enormously influential hybrid known as the New Journalism. So that's what a lead for a Tom Wolf obit sounds like. Now, here is the first paragraph of Wolf's March 1965 piece for Esquire The Last American Hero is Junior Johnson. Yes. And this is Tom Wolf reading that paragraph. 10 o'clock Sunday morning in the hills of North Carolina. Cars, miles of cars in every direction. Millions of cars,
2: pastel cars, aqua green, aqua blue, aqua beige, aqua buff, aqua dawn, aqua dusk, aqua aqua, aqua, aqua malacca, malacca lacca, cloud lavender, assassin pink, rake a raspberry. Nude Strand, Carl, Honest Thrill, Orange, and Baby Fawn Lust cream-colored cars are all going to the stock car races. And that old mother in North Carolina sun keeps exploding off the windshields.
1: That's a pretty good lead, I think. Uh, Joining us now to discuss is our beloved former Slate colleague, uh, John Swansburg. He's now a senior editor at The Atlantic. Hey, John. Hey, great to be here. So before we get started, I'm sure that everyone is wondering, what is Malacca?
0: Uh, I can tell you what it
1: is in Greek. What is it in Greek, Stefan? It means masturbator. Okay, double meaning. <laughs> That's what, what all good all good writers look for. Um, I looked it up, and it's a brown cane that is widely used for walking sticks and um, umbrella handles.
0: Hmm. Tom Wolfe was fond of walking sticks. He, he late in life, had one with a wolf on its head that he brandished uh, at various literary parties.
1: Aqua Um So, John, I'm going to ask you to read your favorite passage from the piece. But before we get to that, just a little bit of background, Junior Johnson was a stock car racer, uh, early days of NASCAR. And this was in the 1960s. He was the part of a bootlegging family. He served a short prison stint um, for running moonshine in North Carolina. And so he's this legendary larger than life figure. So that's basically all the background that you need, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. And he was, um, you know, he was, he was very much coming into his own as a, as a driver when, um, Wolf went and profiled him and sort of put the sport on the map for a lot of readers who at the time didn't, probably didn't know, a lot of Esquire readers probably didn't know what NASCAR was because it was still somewhat confined to the southeast. Uh, so in addition to introducing Junior, Wolf was introducing this kind of somewhat peculiar sport of uh, of stock car racing. Uh, And I'll read this paragraph that sort of describes um, Junior. I I apologize that I don't have a a typewriter to clack in the background, so it won't be as moody as uh, Tom's reading, but I'll give it my best. Junior is in an amiable mood. Like most uphollow people, it turns out, Junior is reserved. His face seldom shows an emotion. He has three basic looks, amiable, amiable and a little shy, and dead serious. To a lot of people, apparently, Junior's dead serious look can seem menacing. There are no cowards left in stock car racing, but a couple of drivers tell me that one of the things that can shake you up is to look in your rearview mirror, going around a curve, and see Junior Johnson's car on your tail trying to root you out of the groove, and then get a glimpse of Junior's dead serious look. I think some of the sports writers are afraid of him. One of them tells me Junior is strong, silent, and explosive. Junior will only give you three answers uh huh, uh uh, and I don't know, and so forth and so on. Actually, I find he handles questions easily. He has a great technical knowledge of automobiles and the physics of speed, including things he never fools with, such as Offenhauser engines. What he never does, Offer, however, is small talk. That gives him a built-in poise, since it deprives him of the chance to say anything asinine. Yins, weins, "Hit" for it, "Groed" for grew, and a lot of other unusual past participles. Junior uses certain older forms of English, not exactly Elizabethan, as they are sometimes called, but older forms of English preserved up country in his territory, Ingle Hollow.
1: Why did you choose that paragraph, John?
0: Well, I thought it would be useful in terms of giving some background uh, on, on Junior and his sort of general affect. But it's also, I think, a great example of the way that, that Wolf could evoke a character uh, and sort of take on his voice and also kind of just really get inside that, that character's head. And, and there's something about Junior Johnson that is exciting to, to sort of read about him. Uh, and sort of think about how this was uh, the dawn of of Wolf's sort of new journalistic career and Junior sort of prefigures a lot of the other great characters who will show up in, in Wolf's later writing and the one I thought of most naturally is, is Chuck Yeager and, and sort of thinking about the way that Wolf sort of also wrote about this uh, kind of hollow dwelling upcountry uh, character who was a master of machines and, and fearless uh, when operating them at high speed. So I kind of love how this sort of prefigures the, the later great writing of Wolf as well as capturing Junior in, in, uh, and sort of the sound of his voice and, and the, the way he
3: handles himself. The other thing about that and about this piece generally and about Wolf generally is that I think people have, that have come that sort of stumble onto Wolfe after his great successes, after the Right Stuff, which came out in 1979, after the Bonfire, of the Vanities, view him as this sort of New York bon vivant in the in the in, in the sort of mold of Truman Capote or George Plimpton or other characters from the 60s and 70s who became literary giants. His his upbringing, though, his career. Never sort of, of of foreshadowed that for him. He was very much. He was a, an academic. He went to Yale for graduate school. He disdained it. He got his uh, he got his his masters and and decided to move on. Um, he was a newspaper reporter and he thought he would be happy as a newspaper reporter. He worked for the Springfield newspaper and then he worked for the Washington Post. And there's a, a profile of, of Tom Wolfe that Michael Lewis wrote in 2015 that really gets at that, that all of this was very sudden and unexpected for Tom Wolf, And he crafted this persona, this white-suited guy – But the reality was he was just a reporter trying to get great stories. And what he realized in the early 1960s is that people weren't telling stories and people weren't falling into these subcultures in a way that allowed this kind of crazy stream of consciousness, expository writing that is grounded in in really detailed reporting, immersion reporting. And I think that's really obvious in the Junior Johnson piece.
1: The interesting thing to think about, though, in the context of this piece in particular, John, is how it was received by the people in the NASCAR culture and in the South. Um, Stefan sent around a piece that was written by this old racing writer, Ed Hardin, that was published on greensboro.com. And his <laughs> basic gloss was, yeah, Tom Wolfe, he came to see a NASCAR race one, once. He didn't really get it right. Uh, But it was like an entertaining piece. It was really long, though. I didn't, I'm not sure I ever finished it. But um, I guess my question for you is, when we say, um, when we look at the piece now and say, wow, he really captured Junior Johnson, he really captured his voice, he captured his affect. How kind of, how can we tell that that's right? Or how can we tell that what he's saying is kind of capturing the essence of Junior Johnson?
0: I mean, it's a little hard for me to say, having, you know, obviously not been alive uh, or a NASCAR fan at the time of sort of Johnson's uh, apex as a driver. Um, but, I, but from my perspective, as someone who uh, fell in love with stock car racing in the mid-aughts um, and sort of went from zero to 60 in terms of knowledge of the sport uh, relatively quickly, um, it totally tracks with me and sort of my understanding of how the sport uh, walks and talks in the present. And that's not exactly the same thing as saying that Wolf absolutely captured who Junior Johnson is. I, I have a hard time speaking to that specifically. But to my mind, he completely captured the way that the sport embraces uh, its kind of backcountry roots and mythologizes the idea that these drivers are uh, good old boys who, who are sort of uh, work work on their cars and they're on their front lawns and sort of are tinkerers, uh, are fearless, uh, are kind of stoic in the way that he describes junior being. I mean, he captured a character that still walked and talked uh, and, and sort of walked the, walked the land decades later. Uh, I mean, they interesting now because I think that good old boy is finally dying off but it's remarkable how long it lasted because there's actually sort of an elegiac tone to um, the Junior Johnson piece because he's writing it, Wolf is writing it at a moment where the kind of backcountry vibe seems to be disappearing and Detroit is pouring all this money into the sport and using it for promotional purposes. And yet that good old boy that he conjures in the, in the person of of Johnson persists in in the, um, in the form of uh, the Petty family and the Jarrett family, later Earnhardt. uh, And so it, it very much speaks to my experience of the sport decades later. I think he nailed it. I mean, it's interesting to ask the question of whether to some degree Wolf uh, you know, played a role in that. Uh, but I think it, he actually just tapped into something that was true about both the, the sport and the way its fans thought
1: about uh, well,
3: it, the sport. Isn't part of the possible resentment to this piece the fact that Wolf was able to do what no other writer, local or otherwise, was able to do, which is to infiltrate the subculture? He got Junior Johnson to talk about something that Junior Johnson never wanted to talk about, which was getting arrested and running moonshine for his family when he was in his teens and 20s. And Johnson, you know, suddenly Tom Wolfe is like at Johnson's farm, like walking around with chickens. And it's this 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 guy in a white suit from New York has managed to penetrate this culture and get this elusive character to speak. And, I think that's and, part and, of it. And, and,
0: and I also think that it's sort of ironic that that, you know, there would be any kind of resentment about this piece, because one of my great um, sadness is about being a NASCAR fan is that there's not that much great writing about the sport in part because so few um, New York writers, white-suited or otherwise, take it seriously. I mean, I think in, in our set, most people, you say NASCAR and they think, oh yeah, isn't that that sport where cars only take left turns for four hours? And it's just sort of dismissed as uninteresting or, you know, to the extent that people do ever think to write about it, they parachute in and they don't do precisely what you were saying, Stefan. They don't have Wolf's incredible gifts as a reporter and someone who can disappear um, into, into a subculture. And they sort of – they kind of gawk at it and or they, they mock it. But that's not – I mean, there's there's a certain kind of wry tone here, obviously. I mean – Wolf always brought that, but yeah. he also seems to love the sport and to, and to understand what makes it great and also to try to use it as a lens on which to understand the New South, which is another you know, classic Wolfian uh, move, that this is not purely him kind of writing about uh, a sort of subculture and holding it up and, and kind of mocking it. He's using it as a way of understanding the, the world that produced it in, I think, quite deft ways. Uh, although in some ways it, it, he's limited in, in that and we could talk about how, but um, I think, you know, it's, it's too bad that, that people didn't necessarily see the, the beauty of this story because to my mind, again, I'm viewing it as a, as a New York dwelling uh, editor, but uh, it's it's like one of the most beautiful evocations of what's special about this sport that that's ever been put to paper.
1: Two things that are really fascinating to me about this piece and looking at it as a kind of historical record are number one, just the fact that regionalism is so prominent here and how the, like, kind of big idea here is, like, I'm going to explain to the rest of America what is going on in the Southeast, and you, you know, you, Esquire reader, don't really know what's going on in this world and just the notion that there's a part of the United States that... Um, has a culture that's entirely separate and distinct from the rest of the country. And in sports, that's pretty much gone. I mean, in NASCAR, there are races across the entire country. You have the Las Vegas Golden Knights and the Stanley Cup final. Um, I think the only place where it persists to some degree is in college football, where you get the, chan- you know, the SEC, SEC chance. And I think that college football is still like – interestingly, defiantly regional in this way, but it was, you know, in that sense, kind of a, uh, you know, a document of the past that doesn't really exist anymore. And the other thing that I found interesting that maybe you were alluding to, John, is the fact that he's writing this in 1965 in the South. The piece has no interest at all in the civil rights movement. It has no interest at all in race and gender, except for... Every time Wolf encounters a woman, there's a description of how beautiful she is. And that's pretty much the entirety of what, um, you know, is discussed about that woman. And the only reference to race is when he talks about this woman, Linda Vaughn, who is like the kind of like – I don't know what you would describe it. It's like the – She's like the the placard girl in between rounds at boxing matches. She's Exactly. Uh, yeah. She just like waves the flag or whatever and looks beautiful at every every race. And the only place that race is mentioned – and the piece is when she says, um, a lot of them think I'm Freddie Lorenzen's girlfriend, but I'm not any of them's girlfriend. I'm real good friends with them all, even Wendell. He being Wendell Scott, the only Negro in big league stock car racing.
0: Yeah, that that was exactly what I was alluding to, Josh. And uh, it is pretty astonishing, particularly when you think about sort of the way that um, Wolf conjures this myth that I referred to earlier of the kind of um, – backcountry uh whiskey uh running driver who's the sort of ethos, provides the ethos for the NASCAR driver. He has this long ish passage where he sort of talks about how there's this uh long standing resentment in the US from um, where the sort of kind of in country folk resent the eastern seaboard uh folk as a result of the eastern seaboard folk applying taxes to um, <laughs> stuff like uh alcohol and you know what you what you see here. He has this long riff about how the, the Southerners resent. Uh, the federal government because of that taxation history running back to the founding. And he never mentions that there might be another reason that, the so- that Southerners res- resent federal authority dating back to a slightly more recent war. Uh, <laughs> he just doesn't even touch it. Uh, and obviously, you know, I, I think there's a powerful sense in, in NASCAR of kind of a Southern pride that, that's quite ugly. And you see that to this day when you go to a race and yeah. uh, fans are defiantly uh, you know, flying the Confederate battle flag, and he just doesn't touch that. And it is a pretty Astonishing uh, oversight, uh, particularly as you say, Josh, he, when he was writing in, in 1965. Um, so the,
3: the piece is, hard, hard, is far from perfect.
1: I mean, the, the Confederate the heart of the
3: Civil Rights Movement. I mean,
1: the Confederate flag was in the Dukes of Hazard. For Christ's sake, I mean, <laughs> not not to say that Dukes of Hazard was a real uh, you know Prussian commentary on race, but it just points up how much of an om- omission it is in this story.
3: And others have pointed out that Wolf did kind of shy away from the bigger stories of his times um, you know th- this profile is one example of it um, he didn't tackle you know he wasn't tackling the civil rights movement or Watergate or politics you know he was finding niches to write about sometimes you know they, they would turn into like bonfire of the vanities sort of upper crust stories um, after he had stopped doing um,
1: doing nonfiction But during he was a guy who was sympathetic to the idea to the uh, stick to sports idea. I guess he was, yeah. Um, But but the one thing about
3: this piece, and I think the one thing that's consistent in um, Wolf's career that you alluded to earlier, John, was how he was striving to find these bigger themes of American heroes. And the passage that I picked out that I liked. sort of foreshadows the right stuff in Chuck Yeager that you mentioned earlier. And I will read that now. Detroit has discovered these pockets of courage almost like a natural resource in the form of Junior Johnson and about 20 other drivers. There is something exquisitely ironic about it. Detroit is now engaged in the highly sophisticated business of offering the illusion of speed for every man, making their cars go 175 miles an hour on racetracks by discovering and putting behind the wheel a breed of mountain men who are living vestiges of a degree of physical courage that became extinct in most other sections of the country by 1900. Of course, Very few stock car drivers have ever had anything to do with the whiskey business. A great many always lead quiet lives off the track. But it is the same strong people among whom the whiskey business developed who produced the kind of men who could drive the stock cars. There are a few exceptions, Freddie Lorenzen from Elmhurst, Illinois, being the most notable. But by and large, it is the rural southern code of honor and courage that has produced these, the most daring men in sports. Wolf would spend 10 years writing the right stuff in search of the most daring men in the military, the most daring men in the space program, the most daring Americans. I think you get a glimpse of that in the Junior Johnson piece that becomes much more thematic as Wolf's career progresses. He was pretty young when he wrote the Junior Johnson piece. I mean, he was in his early 30s.
0: Yeah, and I don't you think it's interesting that he, again, I mean, it finds in Jaeger, uh, you know, he's able to locate uh, a hero uh, who sort of has a lot of that same DNA as Junior Johnson. I mean, the way, yeah. you know, there's a classic passage in the opening of, uh, The Right Stuff where, where Wolf kind of basically credits Jaeger with inventing, uh, like the, the, how the captain speaks to you from the yes. cockpit on every airplane that you've ever been on. And, and it's sort of, it's, it's, you hear it when Junior Johnson talks in this, this piece. It's, you know, there's, there's a way in which Wolf just clearly loves this idea that, um, the backcountry, uh, and its sort of, uh, folkways, would produce the sort of necessary stuff, uh, to use his term, to operate these, these machines, these great, complex, uh, terrifying, death-inducing machines. And that sort of, obviously, he didn't invent Jaeger, uh, but, there, but I think he was attracted to him in part because he had some of that same
3: stuff that Junior Johnson, that he'd think, seen I, in Junior Johnson about I think he kind of did invent Jaeger. I don't think most Americans knew who Chuck Yeager was before the right stuff came out. I mean, he was the guy that broke the sound barrier, but he wasn't like some mythic hero. I mean, right. Wolf created. It's entirely
0: that. possible to imagine that uh, a book on that subject that did not begin and end with Jaeger. Um, you know, it, he wasn't strictly speaking uh, one of the group of astronauts that he that ultimately make up the the, uh, the heart of that of that book. So you're right. I mean, he did. I think he gravitated to Jaeger and, and sort of elevated him to that status in part because he had this um, this admixture of of kind of country country boy, good old boy vibe and uh, utter fearlessness and, and just incredible incredible uh, gift with the and, machine. And,
3: and if you go back and read Michael Lewis's piece about Tom Wolfe, you understand that very clearly, because The Right Stuff started out as a book about the space program, and then it morphed into a book about these American heroes, the importance of status to men, Lewis writes.
1: Let's end with Junior Johnson. And this piece made him kind of a legend. Um, he certainly would have been remembered by NASCAR fans and by folks in his uh, home state of North Carolina, if not for this Tom Wolfe story, but this kind of made him immortal in a way. Um, And there was a Fox Sports documentary a few years ago where Wolfe and Johnson meet again after many, many decades. Um, They were the same age. Junior Johnson is still alive. Um, And I pulled a clip here that is – Kind of, st- it's staged for the documentary, and maybe that helps ex- explain it. But when they're kind of encountering each other, it's just so awkward, and it gives you a sense of like the different worlds that these guys come from. Let's listen to that.
4: Why well, Junior Johnson? <laughs> Tom, as I live and breathe, Tom Wolf, What are you doing, man? How you uh, been getting along? Well, not badly. Yeah, not badly. I'm still uh, vertical. All
1: right. That's half the battle. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Come, come have a seat. Okay. I really like the okay at the end. It's like they've been talking to each other for about 20 seconds and they've already run out of things to say. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, Junior Johnson is now like selling a line of pork skins. Like he also has this brand of moonshine. Like he became a brand, John.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that's fun about the piece is you see, you know, we all now think of NASCAR drivers as sort of born pitchmen, and you sort of see the dawn of that uh, in this piece, among among other things. You know, he's got his automated chicken farm, which I, I confess I don't quite understand what that is, but he's diversifying in the piece as Wolf is is covering him, and uh, you know that that it's interesting to see that because because he sort of has the roots in the in the moonshine business, but he's sort of getting corporatized in the mid '60s, and that obviously will be the path forward for. For the sport, and again, I think it's kind of amazing because Wolf, I think, sees to some degree like the corporatization is going to kill off. Good old boys, but um, somewhat to the, the good old boys' credit, I guess they they refused to be, you know, too boxed in by uh, big Detroit and Coca Cola and all the other sponsors that that came in. That there's something about that ethos that that persisted at least until the, the recent past. Now, uh, you know, there are a lot more California drivers, and and uh, it's, it is starting to disappear with the disappearance of Earnhardt Jr. But Wolf was on the money for for quite a long time.
1: I mean, for all the criticism from folks who are in that culture, that maybe Wolf didn't get it exactly right, he, I think, should get a lot of credit for figuring out how to market and sell these guys to a mass audience. And I think he understood that maybe, I mean, let let me know if you agree, John, but it seems like he understood that in a way that the folks running NASCAR maybe didn't get at that point.
3: Well, he also, I think, understood, Josh, how to write an effective piece of sports writing. I mean this is still the dawn of the era of of, of sort of magazine-ier sports writing. I mean Plimpton had already written um, a couple of his uh, immersive books about playing professional sports and trying to reveal them to the public. But what Wolf does is – You know, create a piece of literature about professional sports, the likes of which people hadn't read largely because of all the exclamation points and the stream of consciousness and the and the and the wonderful sort of reverse storytelling. I mean, you really don't get to Junior Johnson and the and his moonshining career until the very end of the piece and the race that Wolf is covering ostensibly occupies one short, tiny paragraph. Like two yeah, sentences. the race goes
0: by really fast. He did not pick. I mean, it's a testament to Wolf's gifts that yeah. you know, he spun this story out of uh, going to a, a sporting event that ended up being pretty uh, boring, um, and you know, doesn't it doesn't actually, as you say, occupy much of.
3: No, he story. he actually writes it as if it was the lead of an AP story, and I loved yeah. that, that, bit, that, that that part of it. I mean, he just sort of he spends you know, it's like ten thousand words before we get to the three sentences that say eh, Junior Johnson didn't win that day. Right.
0: I mean, it's also important to, to, I think, remind folks that, you know, it's not as if Esquire published this in 1965, and then NASCAR was the sort of juggernaut that we've understood it to be for the last while. It, it still you know, it remained a regional sport for a while. I think this story put it on the map uh, in a pretty significant way, but of my understanding of of sort of NASCAR history is that it's not until uh, the Daytona 500 in 1979, which was broadcast live during a very large uh, snowstorm in the Northeast that sort of pinned a lot of people to their televisions and made them watch an event they might otherwise have skipped that the sport kind of made a jump into the mainstream um, in a sort of meaningful way and began its, its path toward uh, being considered a major uh, American national undertaking. But, I mean, that only in some way speaks uh, that much more to, to Wolf's eye for a story that he was sort of um, that far ahead in, in uh, noticing it and insinuating himself into that, that world and, and convincing his editors at Esquire to, to let him write about it at length.
1: John Swansburg is a senior editor at The Atlantic and still Slate's NASCAR correspondent. Thanks, John.
0: <laughs> for life. Thanks for having me.
1: Now it is time for After Balls. And in our discussion of Tom Wolfe and Junior Johnson, we referenced Linda Vaughn. Uh, Tom Wolfe describes her as having big blonde hair and blossomy breasts uh, and always having Coca Cola and potato chips. Mm-hmm. As she's getting prepared to uh, introduce the, uh, the NASCAR races, Stefan. Yeah,
3: you left out her
1: honeydew legs. Tom Wolf, great uh, champion of, of women. Uh, but Linda Vaughn, we wanted to give her uh, credit where credit is due. Stefan, what is your Linda Vaughn?
3: So I've been coaching my daughter's rec soccer team for 11 years now, as you probably know. Uh, Nine of them, all girls team, the power. The very first rule I imposed on parents on the power was this. Do not shout instructions at your or any other child. Cheer the girls. Keep it generic. Go power. Great job. Woohoo. My approach to coaching has been similar. Encouragement, compliments, limited in-game instruction, keep everything positive. It seems to have worked. Eight girls who were on the team in second grade are still on the team in 10th grade, which for rec soccer is an excellent retention rate. I think I've been a pretty good coach. While I've shamed my parents into being chill, I can't control other coaches and parents. There was one guy in elementary school who never shut up. Volcanic eruptions when they scored a goal, criticized his players, felt threatened by a talented girl in the power. If she pushes you, you push her back. He shouted once. That was good. There was a woman coach of a boys' team we played in sixth grade who, with the game tied one-to-one, screamed, Do you want to lose to girls? It was a woman coach. And then there was the guy who never for not one second didn't shout instructions at his players telling them where to go and what to do. And this was in high school. Guy would walk on the field during play, he'd invade our bench area and continue his monologue. One time, one of my girls came up to me and said, he's making me really uncomfortable. Fortunately, he's not coaching anymore. Reforming youth sports, parents, and coaches who are living out their own warped Belichick fantasies is, of course, impossible. It's like holding Caulfield's observation. If you had a million years to do it in, you couldn't rub out even half the fuck you signs in the world. But you've got to try. And a few weeks ago, my club, D.C. Stoddard Soccer, designated a day of silent soccer. When the game is in progress, everyone except the players has to shut up. Parents can't cheer. Coaches can't shout instructions. Clubs around the country have been doing this for years. South Carolina's Youth Soccer Association did it for an entire month this school year. It's so blindingly obviously a no-brainer I think youth sports are supposed to be about three things. Kids having fun, kids getting better at something, and kids learning to make decisions on their own, functioning without adults telling them what to do all the time. Making parents and coaches aware of how they might sound and act by having them act in the extreme opposite way, might help them moderate their behavior. You don't necessarily need a blanket ban on coaching or cheering, just a way to get people to quiet down and give more agency to their children. I would have been more of a hard ass about it, but Stoddard chose to go with no enforcement for silent soccer. My division played along. There's really not a lot to do in high school anyway. Parents barely show up anymore. Teams usually can't scrape together enough girls for 11 v. 11, so there's not much coaching to do a couple of shouter coaches in the division did keep it in check credit to them stoddart surveyed parents and coaches afterward 44 percent liked silent soccer 36 percent didn't 20 percent were meh Uh, the comments fell about the same on the plus side some people said it made them realize they needed to pipe down others said the kids talked more on the field and were less distracted so yay for all of those self-aware and uh and willing to learn parents and coaches but let's hear from the other side now, shall we, Josh? The kids, quote, missed my real-time feedback, which incidentally is always given in a kind and supportive way, one coach said, because I'm sure it's always kind and supportive. It felt unnatural to sit on the sidelines in silence, a parent said. This is a familiar and predictable theme, Josh. The game is about me, the parent, Here's another one along those lines. Parents just chat and don't feel like part of the game. I hated it. Then there was the contention that sports are about screaming and screaming at children encourages their development as athletes and human beings. It really is just not real life. Kind of silly and no benefit whatsoever. Team sports have noisy sidelines. All right. The next one combined the it's about me and sports are about screaming categories. Part of what makes watching sports great is the ability to cheer, encourage players, and generally be loud. I didn't love having to control my impulses. Then you've got the classic parental lack of self-awareness. Please stop experimenting with our children's athletic development. It is extraordinarily narcissistic behavior on management's part. Yes, management, Josh, is the narcissistic one here. And finally, a parent who I think must watch a lot of Fox News breach of First Amendment, and two big brother comrade for adults. Wow. Silent soccer, everybody.
1: Shouldn't we have some sympathy for the coach? Like, let's stipulate that the coach is being honest here and the feedback is always given in a kind and generous and Mm -hmm. helpful way. Like, why shouldn't we put that in a separate category as the parents, who I think are obviously a bit off the rails?
3: Um, Because most coaches don't realize what they're doing. So the running dialogue during a game telling kids what to do, run here, move there, pass here, move back, move up, shoot now. A lot of coaches don't even recognize that they're doing it and it is incredibly distracting. It's not helpful. I mean some kids tune it out but other kids become sort of aware of the coach before they're aware – more than they're aware of the game. What so if it, the message just... is just chill the fuck out. You can shout some instructions periodically but it doesn't have to be constant.
1: What if we would stipulate that um, everything that the coach was saying was like positive and banal? Yeah. Then, and it, but it was still like fairly constant. Would you still say that's too much? Yes. It's distracting to the kids that are playing.
3: Like they need to learn to make decisions without having but to it's, listen to but, another voice. In but, their but
1: what ear. if it wasn't about decisions? What if it was, all right, let's say here, here's my example stream. It's like, great hustle. Like, oh, uh, you're looking really great out there, number ten. Like, keep it up.
3: Well, that's exactly what you should be saying. It just doesn't yeah, happen. To, it doesn't need to happen <laughs> constantly. Just chill. All right. The most effective coaching I'll I'll is chill. periodic. Coach when the kids come to the sidelines. Coach it before the game. Coach at halftime.
1: Okay. Good, Josh. What's your <laughs> Linda Vaughn? So last week, Stefan, you read your essay, part of your essay from the book "Upon Further Review" about the greatest what ifs in sports history, edited by our friend Mike Pesca. With contributors including Stefan Fatsis and Josh Levine, uh, my entry is titled "What If Game Seven of the 2016 World Series Had Turned Into Every Sports Movie Ever Made?" The premise is fairly clear from the title. That's a good thing about these uh, chapters. You know what you're getting into. If you're not interested, turn off the podcast now and don't read Chapter 31 of the book. Upon further review, so um, I'm nice going to give your last
3: in the book. By the way, it's
1: La- really an honor. Yeah. Anchor, anchor leg. Not batting ninth. It's batted around at that point. So it's back to the the leadoff position. Um, So I'm going to do a little bit of setup here. I'm not going to read from the beginning of the essay. But the concept here is that um, you've got Chris Bryant, the Cubs slugger, the star, as the Cubs are about to win uh, their first World Series in a very long time. He's going on this little reverie about his childhood, about growing up, about hitting a ball in Las Vegas and it going further than, uh, you know, a home run any 11-year-old had ever hit. These are the thoughts, the home movies that are playing in your mind as, uh, you know, this great moment in your life and in sports history is about to happen. And then, out of nowhere, Rajai Davis hits this home run off a role as Chapman. Uh, the game is tied. The Cubs aren't looking like a lock anymore. It starts raining. There's a rain delay.
3: Always a bad sign when it rains.
1: And the Cubs uh, and the Indians go back to the locker room, and I will pick up from there. During the rain delay, the Cubs slugger would have some time to slow his breathing and gather his thoughts, to go back to that peaceful, perfect instant when he'd watched a baseball soar deep into the desert night. All that hard work was about to pay off. It was gut check time. It would all come down to this. And also, a dog had wandered into the Cubs clubhouse and a prepubescent kid had pulled Brian aside to inform the 24-year-old slugger that he was going to sit the rest of this one out. The pooch was playing third and he was batting in the three-hole and that was the way it was going to be. Jason Hayward, a Harley-riding bad boy, an air hockey hustler, who'd worn out his welcome on his last club on account of hogging all the balls in the outfield, had been the first to notice the golden retriever and the sad-looking boy tossing pop flies to his pet in the tunnel underneath progressive field. That dog was a gamer, a four legged Willie Mays. The non-dog version of Willie Mays, which is to say, Willie Mays, had been good enough to lead the New York Giants to sweep over the Cleveland Indians in the nineteen fifty four series, hadn't he? Hayward went looking for Joe Madden to tell him there was nothing in the rule book that said a dog couldn't earn a spot on the Cubs postseason roster. Madden was a nonconformist, the kind of manager who didn't mind that one of his players insisted on calling him Morris Buttermaker. But Madden was no longer in charge of the Chicago Cubs. He'd keeled over minutes earlier, just after whispering four final words, I love you, kid. The skipper's last will and testament spelled out an unusual line of succession. That kid Hayward found wandering in the tunnel, Billy was his name, and his irascible dog, Bud, were running the ball club now. They'd be the ones to decide if the Cubs won their first World Series in 108 years. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Thanks, Stefan. So uh, we have so, Bad News Bears. Bad News
3: Bears, my favorite movie of all time.
1: We've got some Air Bud in there. Bud, We've got some Little L- Big League. L- little Big League. A little Rocky reference in there as yeah, well.
3: But we're just getting warmed up.
1: Yeah, it goes on to you know cover Field of Dreams, Major League, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, League of Their Own. The Natural. Pretty much every sports movie ever made, yeah. which is the premise. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit... Goofy Uh, you did Goofy slash memoir Mm -hmm. for yours I think ours were like on the continuum of essays in the book among the least serious minded yes Um, but it was it's nice to do a little uh, comedy writing gets the uh, yeah creative juices (laughs) (laughs) and it was like a I wanted like a premise that was not like I, I think Mike did a good job and the writers of the book did a good job of not doing like, what if, uh, uh, you know, such and such guy had been drafted by such and such a different team, which is like kind of the most like mainstream what if thing that we do right. in sports. But I wanted to pick one that was like nobody would have thought of this. Oh, and that's –
3: that's you definitely succeeded there, Josh. Um, my question for you is, did you have to go to Wikipedia and come up with a list of all the potential sports movies you could include? Were you sort of making running notes about how you were going to integrate – you know, the natural into the essay?
1: I definitely looked at like all the sports movies that I could find, all the ones that I could gather up. And for the ones that I hadn't seen, uh, Wikipedia was useful. I do not have a totally encyclopedic knowledge of every sports movie that's ever made, but thankfully the internet exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it kind of came to me as I was writing more than having it all be pre planned. I think I knew that I wanted Airbud to be. The Main character. The main character and the initial kind of foray. I mean, one thing that I struggled with a little bit is, um, and I didn't read a lot of the setup of the essay, but I wanted it to kind of like creep up on you and just to get more and more absurd and more uh, Baroque as it went along. But if you like have the first kind of character from a sports movie that appears be Air Bud, then you're like kind of... (laughs) breaking the spell a little bit from the beginning, but that's just the way that I chose to play it. Yeah. Cubs still win. The Cubs do still win. They get there in a slightly different way than uh, than they did in the real game. But Air Bud, though, played well. He did. Can't take it away from him. You can't. Um, check out the book, Upon Further Review, and listen to the Upon Further Review podcast, uh, the first episode that Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons did about what if Nixon was good at football. Um, was quite excellent. You should check it out if you're a Slow Burn fan or a sports fan or any kind of fan of good stuff. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening.